Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast that believes the truth is out there. And also Nookie. This week's episode is Pastorous, Angel of Death by Brett Norwood. If you haven't already, you can check out the original appearance of Pastorus back in episode 12. Good day, monster baiters. Man. We've been busy the last few weeks, but we wanted to take a moment and thank you for the continued support. We're getting more downloads with each passing week. If you are a subscriber and you enjoy the show, then please take a moment to give a five-star rating and review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Any little thing you can do helps a ton, and we are very appreciative. For every 25 new reviews, we are going to release a full-length bonus episode just like the one we did last Monday. So the more you rate and review, the more we will put out, just like the fiction horrors that we are. One more thing, check out our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash monster porn. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Brett, are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? No, Matt. I'm trying to get them to teach me. Well, this sounds fun. You see, Matt. This cat has passed every test I've given her with the Zener cards, predicting with 100% accuracy whether the next card has a star, circle, plus sign, waves, or square. I think, Matt, this cat, Betsy, might be the master I've been seeking. I don't know what to think. That's good. Keep your mind blank around her. Betsy can hear your thoughts as clearly as a mouse scampering in the field. I've been seeking a master to help me hone my clairvoyant and telekinetic skills for years, Matt. At first, I tested countless sheep and goats. And then I followed the teachings of a Welsh corgi for a few months. But then I realized the master must be a cat. Or a whale. Whales are old souls. But it's a cat, Matt. A cat that sees through the veil. Why a cat? Cats are peripheral creatures, Matt. They stalk the fringes of reality just like they stalk the fringes of the room behind the sofa, always seeking the most remote and desolate corners to pee. So cats are masters of alternative planes because they urinate in them? Yes. So how do you know she can't see the reflection of the cards in the window behind you? Matt, that's silly. She's a cat. The bowling alley lay nearly silent past ten at night. No thunder of the rolling balls, no clatter of the resetting pins, no chatter of teens or teams of retirees at tournament. Quiet now. It smelled of old shoes and stale nachos. The lights illuminated the building fully, as during business hours. The only noise was of a man in the midst of one of the middle lanes, 
who crawled around like a baby on the polished hardwood and, at intervals, made a bleeding sound not unlike a goat. A small young woman stood over him on the barrier between lanes. The man crooked his neck to look up at her like a dumb animal. The young woman glared back in silent disdain. She, inexplicably, wore the cassock of a priest. In her right hand was a vintage Walther handgun. I have told you about the rain, she said liltingly. She shot him twice in the head, and when he had rolled over onto his back in the lane, once more in the heart. His eyes rolled in his head, his tongue lolled out as his cheek fell against the lane. The pastoress watched calmly, with bored eyes. Then she turned to walk away. As she did, the man's hand found her ankle and held tight. She twisted to observe her quarry, mouth clenched into a thoughtful frown as the man uttered a last mumbling of indistinct consonants. One eye, glistening and still functional, held hers pleadingly. The weeds are but only for the fire, she said, and she shot him once more, blowing out that remaining eye and spraying blood onto her pant leg. She hustled through the dark parking lot, head down, past the last parked car. For a reason that would not be apparent to any onlooker, the pastorist stopped and stared into the distance, as if she had seen something. Another has begun to glow, she pronounced. They say that the pastorist comes by night, and if you see the pastorist in the night, despair, for you have wandered far, far beyond salvation's reach. A basement of a large apartment complex, midnight. The boiler chortles and spits, the pipes rattle among the cobwebs, and long shadows cast by old tungsten bulbs. The door to apartment zero hangs open by the foot of the stairs. The occupant of same sits on the concrete floor outside his apartment, listening to the industrial orchestra of the night, and cradling his head. His name is Austin, his age twenty-eight. He is lost, forgotten, left behind save by his parents back in Washington. His mother has paid his rent for three consecutive months. Austin must change. As if in answer to an unspoken prayer, a bid put out into the universe for a new direction, a path that can absorb him, make Austin no longer Austin but something new, something he hates less. A dark angel appears. Across the basement in the gloom, there is a raised concrete pad where once some appliance must have stood. Pipes hook through the air from the ceiling. On the pad, something perches like a drab flamingo. A singular luminous red eye glares, insect-like. It is a bulbous mass perched upon the S-like curve of a fat appendage. Lither tentacles dance about the body. Austin stares in dream-enchanted wonder. The valve on the boiler suddenly hisses as pressure is released. The visitor seems to be speaking. Whispers of a new path. The dark angel is gone. Austin must wonder if it was a delirious dream. Weeks ebb and flow like the tired tide of a dead planet inside the confines of apartment zero. Nearly sleepless, 
Austin burns his eyes out by night on a computer screen. The people he's shooting, and conversing with, between the blasts of gunfire and artillery, have become his familiars over preceding weeks. He almost feels he can confide in them. Two o'clock, Nullifer! screeches a voice in his headset. Roger, Austin acknowledges. Cover, says another. Got you, Kekistani Jihad, Austin yells. Thanks, here we go, Nullifer. Postmoker 7, you in? Another voice crackles into Austin's ear. I'm in position. It's Gamergate Girl 7, whose real name is Emily. Rock and roll, M, Austin says, a little too urgently. The colored light dances off of Austin's face in the dark. Outside of his headset, and aside from Austin's shouts, the basement is quiet. When, suddenly, Austin barks in response to his team, only then does the secret world of the game break into the deadly still of his surrounding reality. Nullifer, what are you doing? The headset crackles. What do you mean, I'm... No, 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 no! Nullifer, get out of there! Get out of there! Trying. Asshole! Oh, we're fucked, guys. Dickbutt fucked us. I'm dead. Fuck, I can't save all your asses, Emily says. We're all dead, smoker. Yep, I'm pretty dead, too, Emily says. Good job, team. Oh, shit, Austin says. I'm sorry, guys. Having a shitty week, what can I say? Try that again? I'll suck less this time. There is a painful wait for a reply. There is a clear sense that DMs are being passed around, circumventing Austin. To ease the tension, Austin feels compelled to keep talking until somebody should give him a sign that shit is okay. I'm trash, what can I say? But I'm your trash, lucky dogs. He also posts a meme he thought was funny into the group chat. But the group chat is also dead. Austin becomes aware he is trying too hard, grasping at straws, and probably making things worse. His face burns red. Finally, the voice comes through the headset. You're off the team, Nullifer. We've got another guy who can get us through this campaign. It's over. Silence. Cast out of Eden into silence. Austin becomes aware again how frail is the unreality of the world he has just been in. As he brings his headset off his ears, it is just the colored glow of a small screen fighting against the endless night. Austin slams his fist on the table and winces. Replaying what just happened in his mind feels like digging a knife into himself, but he can't stop himself from rehearsing it over and over. He stumbles to the vanity, pulls the chain on the light, and gazes red-eyed into the mirror. As he listlessly brushes his teeth, all he can think about is this feeling he's had lately, creeping under the surface and peeking tentatively into his conscious monologue here and there, as if testing the waters. This feeling that there is neither reward nor attachment left in life. Like he has nothing. Nothing realistic to look forward to. Nothing to hope for. Nothing to strive for. And his last connections with other human beings be damned. It is just his parents, and mostly his mother anyway. His eyes want to water, but he spits the toothpaste and clenches his jaw. He hates the red-eyed ghoul he sees in the mirror. When he was a child, he had a vague vision of what life turns into as an adult. This is not like it. Austin falls asleep in dreams, 
and in his dreams he is not alone, and he is not in this basement, but out exploring a city with a random acquaintance from high school, visiting shops looking for old comic books. Near waking, he dreams he is fleeing from a killer in an airport, and even that dream he is loath to abandon, because it is something. It is better than the nothing of the waking world. As he flees through the infinite maze of terminals, he has a purpose, he has feelings. Life has excitement and urgency. This is how dreams often were. Good or bad, they were better than waking life, merely for having some missing substance, attachments, desires, thrills, meaning, most of all, meaning. After this, Austin is on another world. It is an unusual dream for him. Rusted mushrooms like sequoias surround and tower over him. A yellow pollen dust drifts in the wind beneath an emerald sky. In the distance, there stands a city, a city of metallic canisters that looks like the cover of a 70s sci-fi novella. When he wakes, he remembers the other dreams first, and fondly, and he hates to leave them behind. He wants to sleep and to dream forever, and stay where people are and purpose. He only remembers the stranger dream as an afterthought, and he wonders where it has come from. In the mirror this morning, he doesn't look into his own eyes. He can't bear to be alone. Even alone in a crowd is counted as superior, so he makes himself go to the coffee shop, where he sits in a corner and pretends not to watch people. Without staring, he listens to a table of young professionals. Their chatter makes shortly clear that they are a team of graphic designers working on a website design. At another table, a 30-something man in a button-down shirt is on the phone for business. He sports a clean, fresh haircut and all the confidence in the world. On his hand, there is a wedding band. Austin sees a small, dark-haired girl rush in, in peacoat and boots, startling him to attention, and it makes him feel sick. The world spins. He realizes how cruel the universe is, that such desirable things should exist as this girl, yet be so utterly unattainable. Even if he was so courageous as to cold approach such a beautiful girl, what could he bring to the table? What does he have to offer? He's never succeeded at anything in his life. He has neither income nor aspirations. What he has is shame. What he has is a breathless apology for all that he is. What he has is this worn brown hoodie. What he has is apartment zero. Suddenly, he feels terribly uncomfortable. Like the strangers around him are pressing upon him, he flees. That evening, he gives in to the temptation to send Gamergate Girl 7, Emily, a direct message. He summons his courage and composes a very long message over the course of a half hour. Then he deletes it and writes, simply, Hey there, I just wanted to say I hope we can still be friends even though I'm out of the team. Maybe we could still play a campaign together sometime. Anyway, that's all. Hope you're well. Bye. He sends it. He immediately wishes he hadn't. There is no immediate reply. An hour later, he gives up watching for the indicator to tell him Gamergate Girl 7 is typing and sits in the dark on his bed. That night, Austin dreams that he meets a girl. She could be Emily. He doesn't know what Emily looks like, after all. He just knows that they messaged back and forth one night for a long time, and she was really fun. This girl, the dream girl, 
whoever she is, is blonde, short, and dressed conservatively in a red sweater and jeans, hair in a ponytail. Her eyes are green and she smiles at him. He is in a house with her. He doesn't know whose house it is. Maybe it belongs to them. They're in the kitchen. Austin grabs her by the arms. He doesn't want to let go because he knows at some level this is a dream and he will be forced to wake up. And it is so, so cruel of a joke of nature to make him fall in love in a dream when all dreams must give way to daylight. And he would never see her again. Austin seizes her and boldly kisses her. The empty coffee cup she has been holding falls from her fingers as she reciprocates, melting into his arms. Austin opens his eyes and she has changed, wearing black. Her pale hair has a fading purple dye job. Her eyes are sunken and sour and lined in black. When he feels something dig into his ribs, he looks down at himself and sees it is the gun she is holding as she fires around through his rib cage, and he feels it breaking the bones and blowing through his back, and he wakes up with a start and a vanishing phantom of pain. It takes him a moment to recall the whole dream, beginning from the end, and when he remembers how it began, he starts to cry into his pillow. It is eleven past two in the morning, but he does not know this, because he doesn't own an alarm clock, and he hasn't charged his phone since he let it die last week. Austin rolls onto his stomach and buries his face in the pillow. He holds his breath, pretending that he's suffocating. It calms him. He limps out of bed and wakes up his computer to see that he hasn't gotten a message. Then he walks away and opens the door to the basement. The world is dead, save for the boiler. He stands in the doorway, in his sweatpants and just stares at the long shadows cast by jaundiced bulbs across pipes and beams and cobwebs. He imagines himself hanging from the rafter. It doesn't scare him anymore. Rather, he feels a wave of relief. The relief of being released from having to go on, and, moreover, the justice of what he deserves for being who he is, for all his flaws and failings. He imagines the groundskeeper finding him, or one of the ladies upstairs next time one of them comes down for laundry. There is some gratification in knowing that then, and only then, would someone understand how he felt about his life. The ultimate confession. The closest confidence. And that shared with a stranger and posthumously. Ah, the irony. As Austin stands outside his door, His attention turns to the high, narrow window at ground level. As if unsurprised to find his former visitor returned, he reaches listlessly to open it. The red eye waits in the window. Three lobes, covered in segments, stare through the little high rectangle. The eye blooms like a flower and sticks him in his temple with a long, dazzling finger. A word, a name falls automatically from his lips. Oda Asinash. Somewhere, somewhen, taken in reverie, Austin sees one like a human being, yet not. A great and ancient one, in clothes he's never seen before, surrounded by an edifice unlike any on earth since the days of the old kingdom of Egypt. And he understands the significance of this man who is not a man. A leader, a pharaoh, even a god tall and purple and veined, a triple chin on his square jaw, deep-set eyes to behold the darkness, a tiara as tall as himself perched over his brow, 
inlaid with what resembles circuitry, shining gold, tethered by transfer cables to a dark beyond. Oda Asenash, he intones again. He hears a voice boom. I am he who is not. I am the end of suffering for all sentient beings. And suddenly Austin is aware of his surroundings once again. Cold air flies in the open window. Austin closes it. Thoughtlessly and dead to feeling, Austin wanders through the basement of the complex like a shade. Through the laundry room, past the ancient storage lockers of rotting wood hung on drooping hinges, into the tunnel that connects his building to the next in the complex, which is lit queasy seafoam green by night, and which flickers. At the far end, the next basement is visible as a black and open doorway, somehow inviting. Before Austin has taken two steps into the tunnel, the light flickers, and for the blink of an eye, there is a figure blocking the far door, the girl dressed in black from the dream, the girl who had shot him. When the light stutters another time, the phantom is gone. Austin staggers back to his apartment and shuts the door. Like a zombie, so close to death yet so far removed, he lies as if comatose in bed until dawn, yet never sleeping, only staring. Over and over, he imagines the black-dressed girl shooting him, and it brings him some measure of relief, some sense, even, of justice. When a couple days have passed and Gamergate Girl 7 has not replied, Austin probably should have let it go, but the desire to make things okay with her was strong, and he gave in to the temptation to message her a meme he thought she would find funny. He couldn't imagine humor doing anything but lightening things, then making her crack a smile. He saw another good one, and he sent it too. What he got back, an hour later, was a curt message that devastated him, that flooded him with shame. It said, I'm going to be honest. You're making me a little uncomfortable. Please, no more DMs. Another night, sleepless. Austin paces through the basement. His apartment door is left open. He recognizes why he leaves his door open and wanders the common space by night. Because he feels less alone. Though no one is around, he seeks something, someone. But at night he knows it is, in a sense, safe. He will not actually run into anyone. He will not run into anyone, but he is also not confined to his little prison. It's a limbo, a middle ground. What if someone came down to do laundry in the middle of the night? Someone too busy to do it during the day. What if Austin met someone and they conversed? What if he passed someone in the tunnel between the buildings? Would they talk, or would this person shy away from the lone young man in a drab hoodie who, for some reason, wanders the basement at night? Yes, they would be afraid, wouldn't they? At least, put off. Austin stands and stares at the silent washing machines for around ten minutes. The boiler spits and hisses. A pipe somewhere pings. Austin then meanders through the basement and passes the ancient storage lockers and imagines the forgotten cobweb junk inside, left behind by tenants long moved on, perhaps even long dead. 
Again, he finds himself praying to no one for an answer, a path, a plan. Somewhere deep, he knows what he wants to do, senses it is the only rational solution left to him. But how? Show me how, he pleads. And for the mere skip of a heartbeat, he sees the purple man, Oda Asanash, sitting cross-legged, like a guru, that tall tiara shooting up from his head like a leafless tree. He holds one hand at his throat, in it a jade knife. Swiftly, he draws it across his throat. Austin winces, is woken. No, I can't do that, he thinks, eyes watering. But as his wits return, he finds himself staring into a yawning storage locker, where sits an old lawnmower. The possible utility of it dawns on him slowly. Carbon monoxide. Could I run it long enough down here before someone discovered me? Austin wanders away from the locker, telling himself he needs to let the idea sit for a while. But he doesn't have the chance. When he reaches the tunnel, he meets someone. Staring down toward the black and open doorway, she appears in the flickering, sick light just like in the apparition before. The girl in black, the girl from the dream. He notices for the first time that she has the white collar of a priest. And he also notices that she carries a firearm, something vintage like an old Walther P-38. And it is fitted with a silencer. When this apparition does not vanish at the fluorescent light's flicker, Austin turns to run. Heart pounding, he locks the door of his apartment behind him and takes up his dead phone. Damn it, he curses, and he fumbles for the charger that is plugged into the power strip under his desk. He prepares himself to call out for help, but then wonders if what he had seen was real at all. He listens, shaking in the dark, the charger plug waiting in his hand. Something strikes the door and he jumps. Surely someone will have heard. His voice croaks dryly, barely managing the word. Help. With another kick, the doorframe fails around the deadbolt and flies open. Surely someone is hearing this. Surely there will be help. The girl's voice creaks. The dawn of this world is coming. She begins to say something else as Austin interrupts her with the wireless keyboard he has thrown at her head. He cries out like a barbarian and throws his blanket over her head and shoves his way out of the door. He finds the door to the staircase closed and locked. He shakes the handle uselessly, and then turns to see the girl still by his door, tearing the blanket from her head and casting darts from her eyes. The rain falls to the earth, she pronounces deliberately, advancing with her pistol leveled at him, and it loses itself to nurture all what is else. Austin runs from the impassable door. A silenced shot strikes the woodwork and sends splinters flying. There is some fight in you, the girl says. This I like. Another shot strikes the boiler as Austin ducks around it toward the laundry room. Steam bursts forth and issues an ear-splitting whistle. Austin's throaty half-cries for help are drowned in it. As Austin runs around the boiler, he flails and grabs onto a pipe that burns him and he screams. Frantic, he tries to keep moving and strikes his head against the low pipe. Shit, he cries, holding his head. He stumbles toward the tunnel to the next building. The girl emerges around the boiler behind him, leveling her gun again. 
Dust and particles explode from a cinder block at the tunnel entrance. Looking back, he finds the girl in the priest's garb, vaguely smiling. Scrambling for the tunnel, Austin cries out, Why? Because the weeds are meant only for the fire, she says, but the wheat for the harvest. Austin's fingers fumble over the doorstop. He manages to close the heavy door behind him. The girl makes no hurry to stop him. On the armature at the top of the door, there is a locking mechanism. Austin rushes to fasten it. The girl's face appears just outside the reinforced glass window in the door, glaring coldly. She steps back and levels the gun at the glass. Austin runs. She shoots. The glass fractures. She fires again, and it breaks. She knocks the remainder out with her little fist and reaches with futility for the armature. Austin attains the far end of the tunnel, but hearing a clatter, he glances back. She has cast her gun through the broken window onto the floor. He recognizes that he could return and take it up. He does not think there is a way she can make it through the door before he can reach the gun. He hesitates, takes a few tentative steps back into the tunnel. The thought that this could be a lure into a trap stops him. As he is about to continue to flee, he sees something beginning to fly in the door. Globs of some blue-tinted substance. They pile onto the floor beside the gun with heavy, wet plops and appear to have the consistency of jello. Whatever it is, there's a lot of it, coming in by the pounds, forming a wobbling heap. Along with the last few chunks come her clothes. He watches with fascinated horror as the blue jelly wobbles and writhes, pushing into her discarded clothing, forming this shape as it works upward from the floor and finally forming the coloration of the girl down to the dye job and makeup. She stoops to pick up her pistol. Austin runs. He ducks first around the wall at the door, but realizing quickly he has nowhere to go from there and no defense. He must bolt from his cover by the wall and duck around this building's boiler. He doesn't look back as he does so. The girl in the priest's outfit never runs, but advances determinedly, slowly after him through the hall, gun raised. A shot strikes the boiler, and another, and again whistling steam begins to pour into the room. He is afraid to look back to see how far she has yet to come. He finds the door to the staircase locked, and he falls against the wall in the corner behind the boiler. He knows he must face her when she comes around that corner. The feeling this gives him is a horrible terror, almost unmanageable, that makes him feel faint now that he has moments to dwell on the fatalistic outcome bearing down on him. But in that reflection, he recognizes something else. The feeling he's known in his dreams. The feeling of purpose. The feeling of things mattering. The gravity of a life-and-death situation hoisted upon him. At this pause, his first chance to think since this surreal apocalypse began, he remembers, ironically, that just before his death became imminent, he had been thinking about dying. In the rafter, there's a spider's web, and in the spider's web, there's a black widow. Austin can see the red hourglass on its marble-sized abdomen, blood and time counted, a fit symbol for a killer. The abdomen of the spider morphs and talks to him. It has become the face of Oda Asinash, triple-chinned and wide. 
Mistake not a momentary thrill and temporary mission for lasting meaning or for permanent hope, child of the quiet. This is wrong thinking. Within you, you know the truth. Austin has a vision of the future. Should he survive this holocaust? And what does it look like? It looks just like everything that came before. A life empty of love or purpose. Half living in apartment zero. But but still, if he fought for his life now, couldn't he fight for a better life on the other side? Is it too late for him? Is it ever? Austin tries to imagine a different future. The future of his childhood conception. Marriage. A family. A house. A meaningful job that he doesn't hate. The pride of providing for his wife and children. It is difficult to imagine. The best he can do is reflect on families he has known, and he realizes he doesn't know if he has ever seen a happy family. Always the mother is resentful for her sacrifices, always the father too, and seemingly dead inside from being trapped in a job he hates to provide for people who don't respect him. Austin returns to the belief that there is no such thing as a desirable future. There is peace and rest that waits for you. In me, speaks Oda Ashnash. For those who believe, and those who know the truth, that we are all nothing in our hearts. It is the nighttime that beckons, the emptiness that embraces without distinction, the sole solution to the suffering that is inherent to biological existence. My implementers heard your prayer and chose you, Austin, to show you and those like you the true way. The spider's abdomen smiles serenely. And still, the past is the future's worst advocate. When the girl rounds the boiler, Austin tries to ambush her, grabbing onto her right arm and wrestling the business end of her pistol toward the ceiling, and taking her by the neck and forcing her head into the boiler's steam. Her free hand grapples his head. She does not scream, or even wince. The steam burns his hand, but he holds on. The runny flesh of her face flutters and spurts with the blast of scalding air but her eyes remain fixed on him, and her aspect enters a slow smile. He squeezes her neck and feels a give to the strength of his sheer desperation. Her flesh is not flesh by the touch either, but begins to fail in his grip. It feels like forcing the broad face of a spoon through a block of jello. Her head topples onto the floor, smiling, tight-lipped but madly, gazing on him. Austin is weeping, sputtering in madness. Her head tumbles into her shoe and merges into it. The bulb of mass flows up through her pant leg and cassock, and her head reblossoms from her neck, the steam wound still present but healing before his eyes. She remains smiling like a doll. I like you, she says. Now she holds him against the wall. Threads extend from her fingertips and enter at the corners of his eyes. Visions pour in, and he recognizes the familiar face of Oda Asnash. A violet youth, born to a decadent society. The comfort makes the glimpses of existential pain harsher when they pierce that artificial veneer. As a young man, Oda Asnash contemplates in rows of cross-legged alien monks, in saffron robes and hats of certain Buddhists. Oda Asnash, alone among the Cenobites, acquires some arcane revelation. His order denounces him, for his enlightenment is not enlightenment so much as it is darkness, emptiness, the nothingness of his deepest sleep, of the silence between his waking thoughts, the insentience of rocks beneath his feet, 
Oda Asenash believes the end of suffering is attained by but one path, death. Yet he recognizes the selfishness in keeping this dark revelation for his own. He pledges that he will not himself pass from suffering into dreamless sleep until every sentient being is freed before him. On another world, a world of fungal forests, where the wind wends laden with saffron spores, the world of Austin's dream, Oda Asenash re-engineers a native life form to be the living vessels to carry the doctrine of death across the universe. He calls them implementers. Though irrational beasts themselves, this synthetic breed now bears his teaching, uncomprehending as machines of the mission born within them, to bear death, the singular hope in a hopeless cosmos, to the masses, the living fodder that unfortunately populates the worlds. In the moment of his revelation, Oda Asenash claimed it to touch, if only for the twinkle of an eye, and become that insentient darkness that all become in death, that all were before coming to be, his God and Buddha, the mind of non-being, the sole rest from a dissatisfying life. Now, this very mind, this being of non-being, lives, or lives not, through the reach of the creatures known as implementers, and all that they touch. It spreads and it grows across the void between the stars. There is a word for it, like the dawn, but for sunset. A universal sunset extending over worlds, a cosmic evening for the light of life. The gloaming. Austin's vision clears. The pistol is in his ribs, so much like the dream. The glaring girl challenges his eyes, a purple dangle of hair transecting one eye. Do you understand? She hisses. Fight! Austin sinks to his knees. He raises his eyes, sadly, mouth agape. You are not so bad impacted. I have found the flame of that spark of survival that remains. And you, you have responded. The flames have pushed back the darkness of Oda Asnash, opening the way for continuance. You may choose to keep the fire alight or not. No longer is it the choice of Oda Asnash. You choose. The dawn of this world is coming. The night is not the all. Austin has stopped fighting. He clasps the girl's legs and sets his forehead on her thigh, weeping. He lifts his head, but he does not meet her eyes. Lip trembling, he shakes his head slowly. The girl groans. Then I become the instrument of your wish. Do you understand? I clean the earth of that rain that bring only death, and that rain is now in you. You are being the weed that chokes the field, and I cannot let spread the seeds of the weed unless you fight. They hold like this. The girl, shoulders back, arms straight, leveling the instrument of truth at the hunched-over boy. In the caesura, her face shows nothing. His shows everything. Four full minutes elapse. Clouds of steam circle and cover Austin in clammy sweat. Austin balls his right hand into a fist and beats it against the girl's thigh. She staggers but resists his shoving, regaining her stance and keeping her straight face. Austin's tears and snot smear on her slacks. She smacks his face with the side of her pistol. Austin flies into a rage, charging onto his feet and wailing on the girl until she is pinned against the wall. 
She begins to smile. He strikes her face back and forth and then falls into her, still violently weeping. She wraps her arms around him. Slowly, he embraces her. She smells like autumn leaves and bleach. She feels like a cold pillow. Shh, yes. Let your rage preserve you, she sneers. Who are you? Austin wonders as the sobs subside. I have no name in tongue of you, she says, letting him go. What are you, then? You're, you're done up like a priest, like a pastor or something. You're, but you're a killer, he stammers. I am sent to kill in silence what must die in silence. Lest it spread, that is the all. With her, the universe has become infinitely more interesting. With so many questions, such wonder at these hidden things, the cult of Ota Asinash, the cassocked girl, now revealed to him, a war, a cosmic war, a spiritual war, and he himself a part of it. What, what do I do now? he wonders. The rage and frustration you feel. Turn them toward the works that make you and the sentient biological organisms around you. Thrive. If you have no purpose other, then know there are others like you, at mercy of Ota Asenash, and there is a war going, a war that needs fighters who understand the what is at stake. The pastorist vanishes into the shadows. Moments later, Austin hears a door. He is alone, but feeling less so. The pastorist comes by night, and they say that whoever meets the pastorist has wandered far beyond salvation's reach. But there are a few who despair, whom may yet be redeemed. Part of the trick, Matt, as Master Betsy has taught me, is staring unblinking at inanimate objects. Yeah, that fuzzy little mouse toy is definitely inanimate. What exactly are you trying to do? Shush, Matt. Well, if you're so psychic, who should I pick for my DraftKings lineup tonight? Ha, I've wasted 50 bucks in the last two years and haven't won a dime. Hmm. Who's playing? The Heat? Maybe the 76ers? Oh, wait, or should I ask you, little kitty cat? Oh, Matt, 
You don't want to mock a psychic master. Oh, yeah. Master. Master Betsy. Right up there with Shifu and Yoda. The problem is, every time you dump all of your allotted cash into one player, then some unheard of bench guy goes off for like 50 points. Happened last night. Cat. Oh, that's a good cat voice, Brett. Wait, Brett? Brett, that was you. Does Brett call himself a cat? No, but I often call Brett a pussy. Hey! What in the hell is going on here? I wouldn't worry about the 76ers and how they're doing, Matt. I would worry about that curious rash that you've had since the Philippines. Does your wife know about Miguel? The speaks master Betsy. Miguel? That was the name of my childhood teddy bear. I know. Oh, God. Brett, Brett, we've got to kill the cat. It, it knows things. It's too late, Matt. She's got a knife. And isn't she a cutie patootie pootie cat? Yes, she is. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. What if we are living in a cosmic cat box and my life is just a turd? Today's story was Pastorous, Angel of Death, by me, Brett Norwood. If God is a cat, then who pets that cat? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the original appearance of Pastorous back in episode 12. Good day, Monster Baiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, you own too many cats, cat lady. And second, please review Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts. Jen says, Brett and Matt have done exactly what they said they would do. They touched me in my Twilight Zone just the way I love it. Thanks, Jen. We try to touch the outer limits. Are you a weird writer? Well, good news, Monster Baiter. Monster Porn Podcast is open for story submissions. And we are excited. Literarily, not sexually. To announce Monster Porn is becoming a paying market for professional scribblers such as yourself. Details to follow on our social media. And support Monster Porn and talented skeleton cartoonist Nick Calavera by checking out his t-shirt design at teespring.com slash stores slash Monster Porn. Well, that's all folks. Until next time, stay weird and Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. Wow.
Oh, I would worry meow, about that curious rash meow, that you've had since the Philippines. Uh, it's like the whole time I'm like this is just sounding too much like me (laughs) but like a cat at the same time okay I'd take a beat if I were a betting cat (laughs) god that was bad too (laughs) I don't know we're getting more downloads with every passing something. Let's try that again. Blowing out that remaining eye and spraying blood onto her plant plant leg. A basement of a large apartment complex. Apartment complex. All right. <laughs> a violet youth born to a decadent society. The comfort makes glimpses of extent. A yawning storage locker where there sits an old long mower. Long mower? A wide mower. <laughs>